Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Poolside Perspectives Podcast. I am Kevin Woodhurst, and with me is my good friend, Mike Farley, and we're so glad you found this podcast. Together, we have been homeowner advocates in outdoor living and the pool industry for over 30 years. So we understand the challenges you face creating your backyard paradise. We know your curiosity is not enough to ensure your success. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about the design process and practical steps to help you create that space. We'll have some fun mixed in with it, some aha moments, and this is no fluff. No one has time for that. So we're going to get serious and get very particular about all of these topics. Whether you are a new homeowner with your first remodel or a seasoned homeowner competing your last dream home, we are here to help you end up with what you dreamed of. From pools to patios, pizza ovens to pergolas, porcelain to pumps, pool party to permits, ping pong tables to the processes to your paradise. This is straight talk and action steps. Let's get started. How are we going to help people today? I thought today, I think a really good topic would be to talk about shade structures and just structures in general in the backyard. Because after all, the show is not just about swimming pools. It is about swimming pools and outdoor living. And here in North Texas, we get a lot of requests for outhouses, outbuildings. Outhouses? Really? Oh, yeah. I guess not. An outhouse could be in an arbor, not an arbor, but a cabana. Oh, yeah. We call it a bathroom. I'm from Idaho. Oh, well. Understand. Funny thing, when I was in the military, I would tell people I was from Idaho and they would be like, I know right where that's right next to Nebraska, isn't it? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's right there. Just missing the D and a couple other letters. Oh, there's a few states in between. Exactly. So I think that shades and structures, how about that? Okay. So we know that there's quite a few different types. So I think maybe a way to tackle this is let's each talk about some different shade structures or shade items. And then we can comment back and forth on them and tell people about the ins and outs. But this is totally focused on shade. I mean, we're in Texas where it's hot. In Arizona, it's hot. California, it's hot. Florida, it's hot. Anywhere in the Sun Belt, if you're building a pool outdoors, you may very well be looking for a way to find some shade and some reprieve from the sun. And that's really what this episode's about. Awesome. So you got to start with your favorite? I don't really have a favorite. I think that shade is undervalued. (laughs) especially when it's so hot out. I like them all. It just depends on the job. Pergolas look really cool in some places. Shed roofs are great at the end of a pool, especially if you got a sunken fireplace area or a sunken kitchen. It becomes part of the pool. And that's really what these pools have morphed into. They've just morphed into more than pools. They're just these entire outdoor entertaining areas. Shade cells can look really good. Retractable shades, there's a lot of them. Want to start with one? Yes. Which one? Let's start with pergolas because I think not everybody understands what pergola is because it's called a couple different things depending on where you're at. So what's your definition? So a pergola is going to be something that's not going to have a completely enclosed roof. It's going to have slats on it. So okay. it could be built out of wood. It could be built out of metal. It can be specified and built in different dimensions so you could get different percentage of sun coverage straight above or not. You can also do essentially an equinox as a pergola, but it just happens to be powered. So you can close and open the slats. So pergola is going to not give you 100% shade protection, but it's going to give you some shade on those hot days. It's also not going to give you any protection from the rain, but again, it gives you shade. Here in Phoenix, where it doesn't rain very much, that's not necessarily a big deal. So there are some panels you can put on top of those to create a rain barrier. Sure. So there's some acrylic that can be The clear ones. Yes, that is a possibility, but... 
I wouldn't say it's a waterproof solution. Sure. And you have to put some a little bit of slope on it so the water drains off of that space. I've seen some recently that have been done really neat with some special metal panels on top that have different patterns cut into the metal. And so it's not just your standard one by two on top of a two by six type of wood situation. So it can be something that's fairly decorative. So what you're talking about is the fabricated panels that are made with plasma cutting. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, they're very cool. Then the other thing that you mentioned is that I see more and more people that are using metal fabrication to create the structure instead of a wood situation. And there's a lot of pros to that as well. Oh, for sure. You're not restaining wood all the time. Yeah. A couple of things are a little different with those than some other type of structures because I was talking today about somebody and when I usually do a structure, if it's a arbor type structure, there's some flexibility in that structure. It can move a little bit and it's generally not got a solid roof. It doesn't have a solid roof on it. So I'll attach that to the shell of a swimming pool. Okay. But if I have a structure that has a solid roof, I don't want to attach it to the shell because I want them to move independent of each other because we have, again, this clay soil in this area. But you have to have some type of footing or something underneath it to support those versus some different engineered structures that we'll talk about later with some other type foundations. Anyway. So pergolas being slatted, then we've got, what, like a shed roof style structure? Sure. Shed roof would be where the roof just pitches all in one direction. And one thing... So people understand these things. We're going to put pictures on our Instagram and on the YouTube channel that reflect all these. So you can use these as a resource later on to communicate to people what you're looking for. And on the website too as well. They could be referenced off of episodes. Correct. That's good. A shed roof, if you take a piece of paper, it's all pitched in one direction. So you've got a high side and a low side and it's all just one sheet. So that works with a the modern style architecture For a little sure. bit more. The other thing that helps a lot of times, some of these cities have height limitations. And so you can get a shed roof that may fall under the height restrictions where it would be difficult to do other type roofs because of the way the pitches and everything are. Like with the gable or hip roof? Correct. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of those. The other thing is it gives a real open feel if you have it facing your primary view so you can see into the space. Also, the ceiling, a lot of times people will use exposed beams in there, or sometimes they'll do it where it's all covered with a tongue and groove cedar or some other type of finish where it's all flat ceiling. Those are details that we'll get into when we talk a little more. Lots of options on them. Correct. And the thing with shed roofs is that pitch, and the pitch's got to be, what, at least three to one? The three, three ones rarely. 312 pitch, I think, is the minimum you can do most of the time without having some issues with leaking. You can also come in with different, depending on the roofing material that you use on it, you might be able to get something lower than the that. 3 to 12 would be like a 4 to 1. No, it would be like a 3 to 1. Yes. Yeah. When you do a roof like that, most homeowners associations are going to make you make that roofing material to match your house. Absolutely. So if you have a tile roof, you're going to have a tile roof on the the structure or metal or composition shingles, whatever matches architecturally with that. And then in Arizona, we call structures ramadas. You call them? Cabanas. Cabanas. Yes. Everybody wants a cabana boy. And it's funny because it's a great name. 
Yeah. It's a great name. Can you think Cabana? It's cool. I'm down at the beach at the Cabana. Yeah. Not necessarily at the Ramada. So when we get into cabanas or ramadas, we're talking about real structures that potential, well, structures that have rain protection, have weather protection. You could put screens on them so you could screen in the entire structure. You could have a bathroom in it. You could have a, another room in it actually out there. And I've had a lot of requests this year for people that want, all right, we want a pool. We want a cabana and it needs to have enough room for a, a weightlifting area. We want a bathroom in it. We want a spare bedroom for our kids. It's practically like building another house out there. Well, it is another house. Right. So, yeah, we have that. And then I have several clients that want multiple cabanas because they want a kitchen cabana with dining space in it. But then they want another one that's for a living room type situation. You did um, an amazing one a few years ago that, in fact, it's in that book. Yes, sir. And what's the name of that? What job is that? The residence. Probably not the residence, but it's a South Lake property, but it's got two ramadas on it or two. Two cabanas. The client, it was something she saw in a photograph and she's like, I really want something. Like We'd actually designed the project. We were ready to start it. We had one cabana and then she saw this picture and she's like, oh, could you do something like this? And I was like, sure. And the cool thing on that project is the doors. She wanted the doors. So we had two 10-foot doors that telescoped back into the walls, fully back into the walls on two sides. So we could open up the front and the side. And then the other cabana, front and the side opened. So you had this open space. And then we put an Equinox structure in between, which is a louvered arbor. So you can open it or close it completely. It's a really cool feature as well. It made this area of space that was close to 70 feet in length by 20 feet in depth. It was all under roof. So yeah, that was a really cool one. It's a beautiful project for sure. We learned a lot in that process because they wanted it fully air conditioned as well. The industry, the demands have gone up and up over the years. So you learn things as you go through some projects because people want things that you're like, well, I never dealt with this before. So on that particular project, we had an interior designer that worked with us on all the stuff inside was I recall, there was products that were used that were ordered from around the world. Yes. It's pretty stunning. That's the fun of things, especially when you bring a team of people together. The team knowledge base has more experience to look at things. So a lot of the stuff that we're designing today, we are building another room. We're building or multiple rooms. And so the general theme with most people is this is just an extension of their home. They want the same style and flavor that's in their house. This is the outdoor rooms versus the indoor rooms. Mm -hmm. And so working with interior designers is really helpful because they've understood the space that they created inside and now we can take it outside. And the big thing is sometimes have to look at product and make sure that it's something that can be used in fully outside situation, handle the freezing and the thawing temperatures. Right, and for all of these, there's some limitations which is one of the reasons why we need to have all the stuff that we talked about in episode two, which has to do with the plot plans, the topo, the house plans. There's a whole bunch of that stuff that's really needed in order to come to some determination as to what you can do. Because if you're building a structure, most lots, especially in residential communities, have setbacks. Correct. The other thing they have a lot of times is a maximum square footage allowed with an accessory structure. That's a good point. If it's detached from the home, they usually label it an accessory structure. It has a different set of rules than if you attach it to the home. 
if you attach it to the home, you have to follow the same rules as the house. Mm -hmm. So there's what's called a building line. And usually if it's attached to the home, you can't go past the building line with the structure that you do. In most cities, if it's not attached to the home, it has a different set of setbacks. And there's all kinds of things like height restrictions. And like I've dealing with the city today, and it was all based on the height of the structure on how close they could be to the property line. And the key was, it wasn't the roof, it was a chimney. And so the height of the chimney dictated how far I had to be off the property line. So the customer was like, well, if that's driving everything, maybe we do uh, a chimney that's actually not a fireplace. We do just an electronic type thing. So we don't have to have as tall of a flue. So there's all kinds of these little details you have to figure out with accessory structures and setbacks. And engineering is also involved in a lot of this stuff too. Certainly, because most of these structures are going to be required to have, or a lot of them anyway, grade beams, possibly piers. Correct. There's just a lot that goes into them. Sometimes you have to have full utilities, and people don't think about how I'm going to put an outdoor bathroom in this Ramada. How am I going to get the sewer out of here? And it's 300 feet away, and it's uphill. Correct. We have to do grinding stations with pumps and those type of things. So there are solutions for those type of solutions. But you have to look at utilities and, oh, we want water. Do we want hot water? Or hot, we need a hot water heater. So we need we hot need water. Gas. There's all these things. So when we're building a Ramada, it's literally like you said earlier, we're building a small house. The crazy thing is a lot of times people think about it initially and they're like, this is really expensive per square foot. And my comment is you took the most expensive rooms in the house and condensed them in a small space. And so all those things, which is your bathroom and your kitchen and all the utilities that are needed for them, you've condensed them into the small space with so small square footage, but you have everything. In the small square footage. In the small square footage. So yes, the other thing is you have no economy of scale because we're not building three other bathrooms on this project. We're just building one. And so we have to bring people out multiple times to do their job and it's a very small job but you have to pay sometimes minimum charges and fees but then you have another place to live exactly and i would think that no I, i'm not going to say i would think i know for a fact you do something like that that's good value added to a home that's something that people get pretty excited about there's actually a ramada in the backyard with a bathroom out by the pool i mean that people are going to get excited about that what I've experienced in resale value is when people build outdoor structures, at least here in North Texas, I can't speak for all over the country, pretty much the investment comes back 100% when they go to sell the property. For sure. So swimming pools usually don't come as high a percentage as an investment, and especially if it's a basic swimming pool. But the more elaborate ones, actually, interestingly enough, do increase the value at a higher percentage. Absolutely, they do. I've seen that many times. So people come in, a lot of times the house is sold because they walk in the backyard and they're like, this is a place that I want to live every day. I want to wake up and have my breakfast here. I want to sit out here as the sun sets and drink my wine. I want to experience this feeling that's in this space that I can't put a word to. And it's a great place. I completely agree. Nothing better than a beautiful swimming pool and a Ramada with a bathroom and outdoor kitchen. 
the, the nice thing is too, then you get the kids out of the house. Yes. They have their own bathroom out there and they're not going to come tracking water through the house. One of the things that's come up in a number of people I've talked to over the past few months is the way their home is configured. There's really not an ideal way to come in and use the bathroom or to come in and change your clothes or take a shower after swimming, if that's your thing. Having a shower near the pool, that's pretty nice to have. And especially a bathroom, you get three, four, five, six kids running in and out of the house all the time, that could might cause somebody to overload. So one thing that here you have to think about, we have a lot of requests now for outdoor showers. Mm-hmm. It's probably gone up 20 times of what it was three or four years ago. And so again, I feel that this is people wanting to experience everything they go on vacation and see now they want to come back and experience this at their home. And so a lot of people want this outdoor shower type situation. And here you have to be really careful because if you're going to put plumbing on a wall that's not heated in the wintertime, most of the time you're going to have some freeze damage because of the freezes that we have here. Oh, for sure. So it's something you have to be really careful about how you think you're going to do this. And so the other thing is, You want to fully think about something on how the pros and the cons of this is going to work. So it's always a lot better if you have it inside versus an outdoor shower. And especially if it's going to be a heated space. Now, if it's not heated in the winter, then it's going to be a lot more challenging. And you may want to look at how to turn that off and drain that so the water won't freeze in the wintertime. Well, that's a a great point as well, simply because as we talked about in the last episode, we're talking a hundred degree swing in temperature when you look at a year as a composite. Right. One of the things that we didn't deal with in Phoenix was freezing was pretty rare. I actually have some pictures of pools in construction in North Scottsdale with six inches of snow on them, but that's pretty rare. It's gone the following day. Right. We here in North Texas where this last winter, I experienced a week of this entire metro area shut down because it was completely frozen. We're not properly prepared for really cold weather. You go to Kansas City and they laugh hysterically at what goes on at Dallas Fort Worth because they deal with that on a weekly basis in the wintertime and they've got the equipment and the infrastructure to deal with it. And here we don't. Because some winters are really mild and we don't have freezing, right? Correct. Sometimes you might have a handful of days that drop into the low 30s and then sometimes you have years that you might have 30 or 45 days that drop into teens. Where it really gets here is when you get string a week at time that it doesn't go above freezing. That really messes things up around here. Which happened, what, two, three years ago now? Yes, we call that the Great Texas Pool Massacre. Yes, that's a good name for it. It wiped out about 50% of the pool equipment in the state of Texas, which was the equivalent to more pool equipment that was sold in the whole country for a year. As I recall, it was around 100,000 pools that were damaged. Uh, I would say that's probably a low number. Yeah, probably. Yes. And so the reason that this freezing is important is simply because when water freezes, it expands. When you have expansive conditions, you're just going to damage stuff. And the irony of a swimming pool and something that I tell everybody is water's what damages the most, whether it's from the inside or the outside. So you've got to come up with creative ways to mitigate this. So back to our Ramada, what are some other things that we might want in that space? You mentioned screens which I think has really become popular, as well as heaters inside the space. Heaters, fans, lighting, storage. 
People are doing just these incredible fireplaces, gathering places for families with kitchens built around them. I've certainly designed some, been out to some that I just want to stay there. It's that nice. And to be outdoors, especially now, it's absolutely gorgeous out. Who wouldn't want to be outside in the evenings watching Monday night football, cooking a steak and enjoying the kids swimming in the pool? So one of the things that's critical to me when I'm working on one of those spaces is I want to know what furniture you're going to put inside of it. So if you're going to put a dining room table, some people are like, yeah, I want a table. What does that table sit for? Six, ten? How big does it need to be? As well, oh, we're going to sit in front of the TV. Is it a love seat and a couple of chairs? Is it three couches? What are we going to put in that space so we make sure it functions well for everybody? It's almost like you have to imagine living in the space and what you would want in order for us as designers to even remotely be able to design it. This is just part of the conversation that happens when you're dealing with somebody that's really looking at the overall project and wants to understand everything that you're doing, everything that you want, so that we can put it together. And it just doesn't work very well when a designer or a salesperson shows up to your house and you say, well, I want a pool and a spa and some sort of shade in the backyard. We can't really work from that. I suppose there's people that can and will, but when it's all said and done, we need a lot of information. In fact, people need to slow down a little bit and allow us to help them because this information just doesn't come out like a shotgun. It's just not all at once. And so it just takes time to work through the design and the plans and to extract the information we need in order to come up with something that you're going to love because you need to love it. You're going to live with it for a long time. You can't go trade it in and get a new Ramada the next year. Because I want to upgrade and I need a table for 12 now instead of the table for four. Again, a lot of cities have a maximum square footage that you're allowed to do. So that's something that's very important to do, to figure out. So the, the double one that I did with the Equinox in between, it was because the maximum square footage of the structure was under solid roof. So if we put the Equinox in there, we didn't have didn't to count. count as a solid roof. Correct. And so we stayed under the square footage, which I think was 600 square feet was the maximum we were allowed. Anyway, there's all these details, as you said, to try to make sure that we get into even a bathroom. Is it a sink and a toilet? Sink and a toilet and a shower? Mm -hmm. Is there storage in that space? Do we need spaces to, oh, we want to put a sauna in there as well? There's all these things that you want to make sure that you accommodate the full thought process. The big thing now that I have clients want is they want a cold plunge. So put that in there somewhere too. In the Ramada? Usually it's in a space more like the outdoor shower in a screen space, or it depends on how the unit's done some built-in ones too. Oh, I like them in the pool with an automatic pool cover on them next to a spa. That's a great idea. Did one of those nights. I know you did. So they, they like that. So were there other details that some of the things you have to think about or how am I tying this in architecturally and even little details like how am I going to span a certain distance between, I have clients like, I don't want that post in the middle. I've got a 30 foot long structure and I don't want that. So we can talk about that. We can figure out how to fix that, but that's a different, we have to do structural beams to make that happen. And that can easily be done. Those are all things that you want to think about. And that's where the 3D modeling also helps a lot to visualize these spaces. So all the details come out like you want them to. Yeah, the visuals. So the question of the day and I was thinking about this earlier. One of the things I've noticed from being in Texas in the last year, because there's no secret that I'm fairly new here, is that the outdoor kitchens are like the old saying of everything is big in Texas. 
We like to eat. And I want you, because I know that you know an awful lot more about this than me, because I'm not a good griller and I don't have a big outdoor kitchen and I don't eat that food anyway, but I know a lot of people enjoy it. But tell me about green eggs. So this is what happens when you have a chicken that goes wrong. No, just a bad <laughs> joke. That's good. So a big green egg used by eggheads worldwide is a ceramic cooker that I'm probably going to get all kinds of hate mail because I don't want to explain this correctly. It's a unit that was able to cook at a very controlled temperature setting. Because it's made out of ceramic? One, because it's made out of ceramic. The, the second thing is the airflow through it is what controls the temperature. Mm -hmm. So I can set my egg on 200 degrees. I can set my egg on 750 degrees. So I have a wide range of what I can use the egg for. So it's versatile. Oh, it's very versatile. Mm -hmm. So there's two things that come out of my egg that my family thoroughly enjoys. And I'm dealing with the two extremes. One is I'm dealing with ribs. I'm cooking ribs at probably 250 for about four hours. And baby back ribs come out awesome in that situation. So My mouth is watering over here. It's great. In fact, my kids would rather eat at Christmas and Thanksgiving ribs because they're like, we get turkey at the other house. So with the other families, make ribs, dad. So usually that's what's on the menu for Christmas and Thanksgiving. The other extreme is I can crank this up to 750 degrees and I can make one of the best ribeyes you'll ever have. And it takes eight minutes, two and a half minutes on one side, flip it, two and a half minutes on the other side, then shut the egg down and just let it smoke for three minutes. And I've got a perfect medium ribeye. So people that love to grill that have an egg, they're called egg heads. They have a following. There's all of that going on. Oh, yeah. Man. So they have actually large events where they'll do competition cooking. And the egg was the first one. The story that I was told was that it came over from the Korean War. Uh, the soldiers brought it back because they used it for cooking there. So this has been around since the 50s. Yes. The first one, I've seen one of the original ones, it was orange. And he said it was orange because that was the color of the clay they made this thing out of. So it's been a gradual building. But again, the cooking aspect, the outdoor living aspect, I think really took off after 9-11. So this has really gotten popular in the last 20 years. But, and there's a lot of, other types of ceramic cookers now. You've got oh, you there's know, a plethora the, of stuff. The Primo, the Primo's fifty percent bigger than a big green egg, and it has a divided chamber, so you can do it direct on one side and indirect cooking on the other side, and it's black instead of green. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you got the Komodo Joe, which is red, and a Komodo Joe has done some neat things with the spring. Megan, my assistant, has a Komodo Joe, cooks on it all the time. She likes it because she can lift the lid very easily versus the big green egg lids a little bit on the heavy side. So there's a lot of different ones. And then there's a lot of knockoffs that aren't real good because the spring is not designed well or it doesn't seal as well. And so you get what you pay for. But you can buy a green egg for under $1,000. And it seems to be the standard at this point for that type of it's been Brilliant. around the longest. It's anytime you're the original, mm -hmm. usually if you're well-made, you hold your position. But if everybody wants to knock you off, there's people that try as well. So when you go to the International Pool Show, 
you can even get a mini green egg, which is big enough to cook like a steak mm-hmm. on just one steak. I've seen one. Versus the, there was the extra, extra large that came out. There was a limit of a hundred of them that were ever made. I actually have one and it's large enough to cook a whole pig in. What? Yes. You can cook, I think it's like some, what was it like? 14 chickens or something in it. It's a crazy thing. It was built for caterers and I've got to get rid of it. So somebody out there, DFW wants it, let me know. Yeah, I'm not cooking any pigs anytime soon. Yeah, didn't think so. So I want to go back because I'm interested in this because I'm a history guy. I love history and where things came from and how they work. And would they have been ceramic during the Korean War? Because I'm thinking no. I'm thinking it was more of a concept. Was it not for that shape and how you bring in the heat and control the heat type thing? I think that's what it is. And I think it's Ed Fisher was the guy that originated the big green egg, but Uh that's where he got the idea from. There's a lot of different things. Today, I have more people that want a big green egg than they want to grill. I can see why. Some people laugh and they say, the grill is the warming drawer. And then I cook my kids' hot dogs on it. But other than that, I cook everything else on the bean green egg. There's just some beautiful grills out. And since I've been here and I've spent a lot of time now designing some of these big outdoor kitchens, I'm fascinated with the amount of stuff that there is. So I typically am meeting somebody somewhere. And I think it's important for them, for the homeowners to come and look at this stuff and see it and touch it and feel it and find out what it can do. And you almost need to do that. So... I know this is a little beyond your question, and we, we'll cover this in yeah, an episode. Yeah, we need to come back to it. But you've got pellet girls, which have an auger that feed the wood. So unlike the big green egg that I've got to monitor the temperature a little bit, you just set a thermostat, and that makes it even easier. And then you have a standard grill, which is, the standard grill is good for more than just hot dogs. There's some people that spend $2,000 on a grill, and there's people that spend $7,000 on a grill. So you have to understand what you're wanting it for and how to use it. And again, this is something we'll come back to. So. Sure. Great. That was awesome. Thank you very much. Certainly. I think that one of the things that we talked in episode two about all of the stuff that you need to bring to the table, if you will, not only to your designer, but you need to have the stuff anyway, but would be the HOA, the covenants, the CCNRs in your specific community. That would be yet another thing to have because there would be instances where cities might allow stuff, but a particular subdivision doesn't and vice versa. Oh yeah, that happens. So you want to make sure you're properly prepared. And usually people know, but sometimes you have a new HOA and when you're dealing with a new HOA, it's even the most important that you get in and find out all their little particulars that they want to have. When you moved into your last house, Mike, did you get your HOA paperwork out and comb through all that information? When I bought my last home, the previous one, we lived in an HOA. They gave us the manual when we were signing, which was over two inches thick. At closing, here, sign that you agreed all this, which we then found out later on there were several things that we didn't agree with. So when we bought our next home, our my kid's request was, could we please live in a neighborhood that doesn't have an HOA. Right. So we bought in an older neighborhood and there is no HOA in our neighborhood. Yes, I rather enjoy having no HOA. So if you live in a community with an HOA, you've got a whole nother set of rules and regulations you got to comply with. Yes. And I would encourage anybody that's thinking about getting a pool, whether you've talked to somebody or not, is to download that information from your HOA and get really familiar with it. And you might need somebody like myself or Mike or somebody else to help you understand it, but that information is critical. 
The other thing is to understand you can't just go out and build one of these structures. What? No, you have to get a set of permits and it's inspected during the process. They have to be engineered as well. And so all those things have to be properly prepared to build something properly. That brings up this point, and that is that if I'm going to build a new custom house, I'm going to go pay an architect to design the house. Then I've got to pay an engineer to design the site to accept the house. Correct. Then there's a contractor that's going to build it. Very likely or possibly the contractor might require some sort of retainer to figure out, okay, we're going to go through this process of figuring out what it costs. We've got a plan and we've got engineering, but it's really not so different with this. There's potentially items that are going to require an investment on their part in order for us to figure out what it's going to cost. And there's just things that it makes sense to have anyway. If you are in a home that you intend on living and you intend on adding to, put a pool in, an outdoor structure, whatever, you need a sales report. I mean, there's just so much information that people need. It's not like you can just shop like you would for a car, open up the phone book, start calling pool companies and get 10 or 12 or 15 people all lined up and dialed up. Salespeople come out, they take your order. This is totally different. And I believe one of the reasons why we're doing this is because we really want people to understand that there is a very big difference in building just a basic production pool and a very nice, very high-end, very artistic custom pool. The water is exactly the same in both of them. The kids are not going to care. They're going to enjoy it just the same. But depending on what type of client you are and who you are, what your property looks like and what you're trying to accomplish, it's different. Sure. Now, there are some things you can do that don't require all that. You can get an umbrella. You don't have to pay to have an umbrella. You don't have to have a permit to get an umbrella. But there are real simple umbrellas you can get, and you can go get a Tucci umbrella too. And that's a really nice umbrella. Yeah. So seeing staying back track with the shade, Tucci has a remarkable assortment of shade items that can be installed in and around a pool. Some of them are so big they require a rather large footing and a mount that goes in the ground. So the thing won't move. They're huge. They're big. They're really cool. You can get one the size of a room. 14 by 14, I think. Is the largest. Yes, I believe so. There's always exceptions, I'm sure. Yeah. That's the top of the line. And then there's simple umbrella that you can get different places that they can provide some shade. Now, you can come in and set bases for those. In some cases, we will actually set sleeves inside the pool because what we call a tanning ledge I prefer not to call it a tanning ledge because most people today don't want to sit there and tan. In fact, What do they want to do? Most people just want to sit there and hang out, but they want to sit there in the shade. And so a popular thing to do is to set up so an umbrella can be received on the tanning ledge and you can take it in and out as you want type situation. So that's helpful. How many different names are there for a tanning ledge? I call it a relaxing ledge. Relaxing ledge. But I've never heard anybody else call it that. I have called it a Baja shelf. Yes. A Shamu shelf. Yes. And I'll tell you the story about the Shamu shelf. Oh, I got a story with that one too. Yeah, we had a massive shelf on one of our pools in Phoenix. And when we were over at, oh boy, in San Diego at SeaWorld. Yes. A big old well came and <laughs> splashed up on that big ledge and splashed us. And one of my children said, Daddy, you look like Shamu when you come up on the Baja shelf on the tanning ledge. I'm like, okay, it's time to lose weight. Okay. My story is we had SeaWorld in Northern California, right outside of where we lived. There was another SeaWorld there. There was Shamu's brother or somebody else there. That's no longer open though, is it? Yeah. It's in just west of Fairfield. 
can't remember the name of town. Anyway, it's still there. But the crazy thing is my wife went on an appointment with me and she's hardly ever gone on an appointment with me. So we're sitting there and I'm talking about the Shamu shelf. After we finished, she said, did you see the lady's look on her face when you called it a Shamu shelf? And I said, no. And she said, yeah, she thought you were calling her a beached whale. Oh, jeez. And so at that point, I've never used that term again. I've used it in jest for a story here and there, but tanning shelf, tanning ledge, Baja shelf, Shamu shelf. It's got all kinds of words. When it's all said and done, it's typically a very large ledge that's usually about six inches deep. It could be deeper. It could be 10. It could be 12. It could be a ton of them were built at 18 back before ledge loungers. One of the pools that I built for my family in Phoenix, we had a very large first shelf and then a massive second shelf that was 18 inches deep. And it was a third of the pool, but the kids were three and two. They were all young. And so we wanted to have a big area in them in the pool for them to play around in. And I had bubblers in there and lots of fun things. We found some little mosaic tiles to put in there so the kids could go underneath the water and see them. But I haven't built a pool in probably the last 10 years that does not have some form of shelf where people can gather and sit on or relax on or lay back on or the little kids can play in. They're great. I tell people that's probably the most popular space in a swimming pool. Oh, for sure. And when I started doing them 25 years ago, people were like, but the baby grows up. And I said, but seriously, it'll be something you really enjoy. And what I found is Every age group likes that space. There's just something about being in the water. Yeah, it's only six inches deep, but you're in the pool. You're engaged with the people in the pool. You're in the space. And it's just nice to be in the space of water. My mother-in-law, it's her favorite spot. She wants to sit in a chair, put her feet in the water, and be under the shade so she can interact with everybody that's in the swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And so this was something I realized that actually her pool was the first pool I ever designed. So that was a real education for me to design a pool for my mother-in-law and father-in-law. But I realized I didn't put an umbrella sleeve in there. And so I put umbrella sleeves on all my projects for that space because my mother-in-law later on was like, it sure would have been nice if we had a sleeve here. And so many people later on have said, oh, we didn't know we got that and we really enjoy it. And so it's something that works out well. And you can also put a portable base in there. Yes, you certainly can. So So that's another way. So that's great on the umbrellas. And so we can put umbrella anchors. And why do we call them anchors here? Because they anchor where the umbrella is going to go. Is the umbrella actually anchored to it? No. Tethered or tied to it? No, it slides in and out. Yeah, I can't figure that out because the terminology here is a little bit different. Sure. And we kept talking. So we call them sleeves. Well, that makes a little more sense. Instead of an anchor, because I think of an anchor, it's going to hold it down. And I assumed that's the reason they call them anchors and do it that way here is simply because of the wind, it would hold it down. Oh, no, those umbrellas <laughs> right. will sail. Goodbye. Goodbye. Especially if you have one open. But what was interesting is the large ones, when I first dealt with a large one, I was like, oh, this is going to be a disaster when the weather comes. And actually what I found is when they close those, and they're strapped shut, they don't have problems with the wind at all. And I've never had a bad experience with one so far. But I don't live in Florida where they have hurricanes either, so. We have tornadoes here. Yeah, that's true. Adaptation of the umbrella that I think is really cool in some spaces is what we call sail. Do they call them sails in Arizona? Yes. Okay, hey, we sail in both places. So we're talking about a piece of fabric of some sort, whatever it's made out, tethered to... 
three or more poles to create some sort of shade, like you might see at a playground. Yes. It's really cool in the fact that you can bring, I think, two things. Sometimes it brings color Mm -hmm. into the project, which is a really neat feature sometimes. And then also something that can be put up in a small space seasonally, because sometimes you want sun and sometimes you don't. And so that's a nice feature. Sometimes it can be added. I think any of that overhead stuff, aside from the fact that you're gaining some shade from it, it makes the space feel different. You create a ceiling. And so now that I have a ceiling, there's a lot of people in the psychology of spaces. It was I've read some books that are really cool about this. And some people just feel much more at ease when they have something above them. And it could be as simple as tree cover, or it can be something with a solid roof or an arbor. It just makes it feel more like a room. One of the things I read a book just recently on biophilic design, and biophilic design is taking nature into the house. And I said, I did an article just recently for Water Shapes, and it was talking about that biophilic design, I feel we've created that. That's what people want now is they want a room outside. We have all the natural elements that they want to bring into the house, but we already have established them in the backyard. We just need the room to live in. Mm -hmm. And so now if we have a space with a roof over us, we can go outside and live there and enjoy the water views and the sounds and the animals and all the things that we've removed ourselves from in society here recently. But a lot of people after COVID found out that they really enjoy those spaces. And so they want to have that room to live in. Do you think COVID was a catalyst for a lot of this? It seemed like it was trending that direction anyway, but maybe... COVID supercharged it because now people were stuck at home and now they're feeling, I'm not going to go on vacation. I'm going to spend the money here and have my own staycation. My first experience of this was I've been in this industry for 30 years. I could count on one hand how many outdoor kitchens I did before 9-11. Okay, 9-11 changed the industry and demanded covered porch to be expanded, the cabana and ramada built, the outdoor kitchen built. So we wanted to go outside to live and to cook. What COVID and my feeling did was, yes, move that to another level. Okay, we don't want to go outside to cook and live. We want everything that was outside, inside, now outside. So we want to watch our movies. We want to shower outside. We want to play games. We want every room that we have inside the house. Now we want to be able to do that outside. And certainly since, what's it been, 10, 15 years now, we've had big flat screen TVs. Everybody wants to be outside watching TV. As you said earlier, this is the perfect time of year to do it. The spring and the fall here are awesome. The winter, if you drop down your shades, screens in your space and turn your heaters on, again, you can still go out there and thoroughly enjoy the space. Be very comfortable. And if you go outside in the middle of the summer, some parts of the country, misters work really cool. I know in Houston, they don't work at all. The humidity is too high. In Arizona, they're phenomenal, I understand. Here in DFW, I tell everybody it's a 50-50 shoot. Depends on if we have a dry summer or a wet summer. If we have a lot of rain, they don't work real well. And the challenge between here and Phoenix would be Phoenix doesn't freeze. And so if you've got misting and a fogging system here, you've got to winterize it. Oh, most definitely. That's a big difference. Yeah, they work fantastic. You know, I've chilled our backyard by 20 degrees. 
by having the entire back patio and the pool fogged and misted. That's pretty cool. I've seen some really neat looking pictures of it too. I could make almost the entire backyard disappear. That was pretty cool, yeah. So I think we pretty much covered shade. And to recap, we've got cabanas. Correct. Or ramadas. Correct. We've got pergolas or slatted roofs. We've got umbrellas of all different types and sizes and ways to install them and use them. We have shade cells. I don't know that we missed a whole lot. We mentioned it just briefly. There is a hybrid arbor type structure, which is a louvered arbor. We use, it's saying Kleenex. Equinox is a brand Mm -hmm. that's a very uh, strong brand. There's some other ones out there as well. But the cool thing about those is slats can move to be fully open where you got 100% sunlight, which is great in the wintertime. They can be partially closed to whatever degree that you want, or you can fully shut them. And when it first came out, I did my first one 12 years ago, and they claimed that it was 100% waterproof. And I was like, I'm going to tell them 90% maybe waterproof. But what I found is they work extremely well, so much when my mother-in-law and father-in-law moved and I designed their new backyard, I put an Equinox structure in and they were the rave of the neighborhood. Quite a few of them went up in their neighborhood because of that. I think we should add Equinox link somewhere on the website. But again, to recap on the Equinox, this is a product that is installed that can be, you basically have the remote control of the car. Yeah. And that controls the louvered slats, which open and close, which gives you some rain protection and also gives you shade protection, either slatted or not slatted. We have a poolside podcast vocabulary word today. Yes, and we forgot to stop halfway through and go, that's, but we'll just do it now because we're going to make it all work anyway, no matter what. Oh, yeah. And what was the word? I was thinking of footing. Like footing the bill for something? Oh, I was thinking of another footing, although I do owe you some money for lunch. Oh, yeah, you don't, yeah. <laughs> a footing is part of the foundation. Mm-hmm that's basically in the ground that helps support it so it doesn't sink or settle or something along those lines is what Webster said it was. But a footing could also be a grade beam. A footing could be a grade beam as well. So in layman terms, a footing is exactly what, Mike? It could be just a section of concrete that supports a single post. A footing could be a section of concrete that supports a whole wall that's continuous. The problem is if I do four corners of a post each and I put footings on those, the chances of it twisting over time is a definite possibility because they're in four independent pieces, legs sticking in the ground. Now, if you have an arbor that's built out of wood and it twists a little bit, you're probably okay. But if you're doing a solid roof with a ceiling and lights in it and all kinds of things like that, you can't have those four corners moving independently. And so that's what our grade beam, you're basically, I describe it as a waffle underneath the concrete that connects all four corners together. It's stabilizing everything. Correct. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to stabilize stuff so it doesn't have a problem, doesn't sink, doesn't swell. So when you build a house, do houses get built with just footings or they get built with grade beams it depends but around here most of them are grade beams Mm -hmm. the uh construction in different areas is different but and that's a really good way i think to maybe start understanding stuff is get around your specific area especially when new houses are being built 
and look at the foundations from for them. In Arizona, they literally build right on the ground. You know, being from Idaho and being a former home builder in Idaho, when I got to Phoenix 30 some odd years ago, I was flabbergasted with the construction. It just didn't make any sense to me. It's a very production market, Phoenix is. It's a very transient city. People come and go. It's a great city. It's a beautiful city. We love it there. We still have our home there. But at the end of the day, it was so diverse and different than what we were doing in Idaho. It took me a while to catch on to it. And I don't necessarily think it's better. It's just that production-wise, and that's the point of production, which we had a conversation about, is really all about how can we inexpensively or how cheap or how little can we build something for? That, to me, is what production is all about. It's all about being not doing anything more than you absolutely have to. We want to do what works best. Absolutely. All right, so I think that's going to wrap up episode three here. We'll see you on number four. This show is all about helping you become a better buyer, a better pool owner, and hopefully you're going to find some insights into how to enjoy your pool even more so, how to help your friends, your family, anybody looking to buy a pool in the future or that want to remodel their backyard, add an outdoor fireplace, fire pit, add an outdoor kitchen area, add some shade cells or whatever else it is. We want to be that resource for you. And that's the end goal here. And we promise that there's going to be a ton of information. We'll try to go through it, you know, as relatively quickly, but also slow so people can understand. But the intent of the show, the reason Mike and I are doing this is because we just got a lot in our heads and we want to share it. So we hope to see you here every single week. Thanks for listening.